all mic'd up. There we go. Good morning. Welcome to this gathering of North Hills Church. We are, of course, glad that you're here on this Father's Day. If you have your Bibles this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. As we often give disclaimers, especially on holidays and special days, sometimes we, uh, we use those opportunities to, uh, to preach uh, to them. Uh, this morning is not one of those days. We're going to continue in the book of Daniel. But, Dads, I am glad to tell you, unlike uh, Mother's Day, which uh, we, found, uh, we found ourselves in a, uh, in a difficult passage then, this morning we get to look at ancient warfare and Alexander the Great and uh, goats fighting rams. It's going to be a good manly day. Her, her, her. Amen? All right. So if you have your Bibles, go with me to Daniel chapter 8. Uh, last week we uh, began, or I guess three weeks ago rather, we began uh, this section of the book of Daniel. It's dealing with his four visions and uh, took us a few weeks there to get through his first vision. And we wrapped it up last week. And this morning we will begin Daniel chapter 8, eight which uh, brings us to his second vision. Uh, and we're going to find all kind of interesting things here. So let's read our text and then we'll back up and unpack it like we normally do. We're going to read Daniel 8, uh, 1 through 14. Let us read. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at, Uli Canal, at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing at the bank of the canal, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his, there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the hosts of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and hosts to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, and then the sanctuary shall be restored 
to its rightful state. Let us pray. Lord, as we come to this text, as we come to this second vision of Daniel, Lord, I pray that you would um, speak to us this morning. Help us to understand, not by our wisdom, not by our own understanding, Lord, but solely from the Spirit. So would you lead us and guide us this morning through our text, and would you help us to see your great victory, ultimately in Christ. And in his strong name we do pray. Amen. Well, as we turn our attention to Daniel 8 this morning, we come to this second vision. And as always, we're going to spend some time in the setting and understanding what's happening here. And then next week, Evan gets to help us understand what it all means. And so, uh, so this morning, as we look at this second vision, we see, if you're, especially if you are with us last week, we see con- a lot of connections between Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 7. Uh, this is the second vision that he has during Belshazzar's reign. We see in Daniel 7, 1, as we were a few weeks ago, in the first year of Belshazzar's reign in Babylon, and now we're seeing the third year of the same king in his reign. And so it's, uh, we see a little, uh, as we said, Daniel's 1 through 6 was a certain chronology, and then it goes back, and Daniel chapter 7 kind of backs up a little bit in the life of Daniel, but we see it progressing again. So we see last, uh, uh, this last vision was year 1, now we're at year 3. And just to make sure he, that we understand that it's after the first one, he says, after that which appeared to me at the first. And so he's been very clear of the order of these visions. This is the second vision that he is having. So this, uh, this setting is two years after uh, Daniel chapter 7. And also it puts him in a very specific place. If you remember Daniel chapter 7, the first vision, he was just near the great sea in a very uh, unspecific place. But now it says that he is in Susa the Citadel. Now, if you've been with us long, Susa the Citadel may sound familiar uh, from the book of Esther or Esther, as some would say, uh, that we studied a couple of years back. And if you go back to Daniel, go back to the book of Esther, you'll see that uh, the location there is dear, during that time of the Persians and Medes, uh, and they're located there at the citadel of Susa. We'll also see it, I believe, in, uh, in Nehemiah. And so, uh, so now we see a little more specific setting than we saw in Daniel chapter 7. And some made the connection that in Daniel chapter 7 was more of a symbolic vision, more of a symbolic dream, and thus had a little more symbolic uh, setting where, da- where Daniel chapter 8, the second vision, is more of a historic vision. We see a little more clearly what's happening in the second vision than we do the first, and thus Daniel has a very specific place, not even a specific city, mind you. It says that he is in suit of the citadel which is in the province of elam and it says that he's sitting on the bank there and he raises his eyes so it tells us very clearly where he's at what's happening and what he sees and so as we look at his vision we're going to see three things this morning uh, the first of which is this is that god sets the future these things for us they are historical these things actually happened that we're going to deal with this morning but for daniel these things had not happened yet they had not come about these things were future events and god gives him this vision with great seemingly great clarity uh may have been a little unclear for him at the time but looking back with very great clarity as to what happened who was going to be involved and we'll see that this stuff was not as mysterious as one would think even to daniel and his peers at that time 
But we see that God sets the future. Uh, Daniel sees the future, but God sets the future. And there's a big difference in that. God doesn't just see the future, what's going to happen. Oh, I'm this cosmic being. I can see the future. I can, I can tell you what's going to happen. He sets it. He puts it in motion. He puts it in place. He doesn't just experience it. He creates it. He sets the future. Everything that happens, past, present, and future, and for all eternity, is at the will of our God. And so it's important to note that God sets the future. He's not just looking down the road and and giving this vision to Daniel. He's saying, this is what I am going to do, Daniel. This is what I'm going to do in your midst. This is what I'm going to do in the future of my people. God sets the future. And then Daniel gets to see it. Daniel gets to behold it. So let's look at this vision that he has of these future events. He says there, he's in the Citadel, he's in Elam, and he saw this vision. As I, I was at the uh, Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing at the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up at last. And I saw the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. So it's clear that this beast that he sees, this animal, this ram, uh, represents some mighty king, some mighty kingdom that is, uh, that is doing as he pleases. And it says that he became great. And so this first animal that we see uh, is, represents the kingdom of Media and Persia. Uh, these two these two nations that come together to make one empire the Medes and Persians and we see them throughout scripture we we see them in Esther we see them in Daniel we see them all through history because they're not just some made-up account they are a historical nation that ruled the known world for a period of time and just as God says here they would rule very clearly they were ruled mightily, and they were not ruling yet. This was, uh, if you're back up in Daniel chapter 6, and uh, we see that the Medes and Persians, we, they're the ones who take over the Babylonians. And so we see they're, already, they're showing up in Daniel 5 and Daniel 6. But now in Daniel 8, as we back up kind of chronologically, they're not there yet. They're not on the scene in Babylon specifically. A little timeline for you. We, I know it gets a little difficult as we go through Daniel, kind of where everything is and when, thing, when things are happening. Just a few key dates for you. The exile, which, which is what Daniel, uh, Daniel opens up with whenever Nebuchadnezzar goes to Jerusalem and, t- and brings into captivity the Israelites. Uh, that begins roughly around 607 B.C. So 607 is whenever all of this begins. Um, Belshazzar comes into power around 550 B.C. And at the same year, at least many would say at the same time, the Persian Empire is founded in 550 B.C. But they don't show up for another 11 years to conquer Babylon in 539 B.C. And then we'll see just a couple years later, as we'll talk about in just a moment, in 537 is whenever the Hebrew people uh, are sent back to Jerusalem and they leave uh, captivity after 70 years just as God had said would happen because again God doesn't just see the future God sets the future so this is this Persian uh, empire these Persian and Mede empire 
uh, one historian from the 4th century records that the Persian ruler was known for wearing a ram's head whenever he led his army. So whenever Daniel came across, whenever Daniel had this vision and saw the ram, uh, there would have been a pretty quick connection because uh, they, they were already being established. And especially as they would come on the scene, they would recognize who this kingdom would be. Uh, because the Persian Empire was very closely associated with the ram. The ram was significant for the Medes and Persian Persians. It was actually their national emblem and even on many of their coins and headdresses of their emperors. And so the ram clearly represented uh, the Persian and Mede Empire. Uh, as we'll see next week, as, uh, as Evan walks through the second half of Daniel chapter 8, it's very clear because God said this empire is the Medes and Persians. And so there's no doubt of who this is. And their domain and their power is very clear. They have become great. No one could stand against them. They are a powerful nation uh, that, is, that will overtake Babylon and that will overtake the known world at this time. And we see, as we have seen these past couple months in Daniel, there's just constant warring in the ancient Near East. And so the Medes and Persians led by Cyrus and Darius uh, are no different. They will be a, a mighty force to be reckoned with. But it's interesting to me that as we see that God sets the future, God uses them. They don't just pop up accidentally. They don't just become great uh, unbeknownst to the Lord. But God uses the might and the power and even specifically the wealth of these kings and of this empire. God used them to return Israel back with resources to rebuild the, uh, the, the temple. If you go to Ezra chapter 6, go with me there. It's over a few books to your left, about seven or eight books maybe, I'm just kind of guessing, but it's over right before Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, so go to the Psalms, the middle of the Bible, turn left by a little bit, but Ezra chapter 6, just to see a picture, we're going to read this kind of fast, but I just want to see a glimpse of what God's Word says about uh, this particular kingdom. Ezra chapter 6 says, Then Darius the king made a decree. We see Darius is as one of the rulers of the Mede-Persian Empire. Darius the king made a decree, and, cer- and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, so we see Persian and Media right there, a scroll was found on which was written a record in the first year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God of Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, let the temple be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. He said, we're going to pay for this, guys. So let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. Um, also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, let those be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. So you see this kingdom undoing what Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had done against Israel. Now, therefore, 
Tatanai, uh, governor of the province beyond the river of Shethazar Bazana, and, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work of this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild his house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of, his house of, of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal avenue. And let me tell you, as a contractor, that's a big thing. He says, pay the guy in full and pay him quickly so they can rebuild what they are trying to rebuild. And the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, sheep, burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests of of Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the, the life of the king and his sons. Now that should be enough, right? But he doesn't stop. He says, also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his own house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. I mean, that's a pretty serious consequence, right? Not only are we going to pay for all the rebuilding, not only are we going to send them back to Jerusalem, but if you mess with this, we're going to take a beam from your house, impale you on it, and lay your house to ruins. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. So as you see this mighty king and this mighty kingdom that is, has been that is being brought to power, God set that future. He set that in motion, and he has a plan to use the power, the might, and the wealth of this kingdom for the good of his people. For all things are done for two reasons. In North Hills, we know this. They're done for the glory of God and the good of his people. Even the power of this first kingdom here, this ram, these Medes and Persians. But the ram was not left alone. Enter the goat. And so verse 5, he says, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And just that one sentence kind of sets this picture. And we talked about the speed in which the, the Greek empire grew um, whenever they were expanding, whenever they were taking over. And so uh, the, the Greeks had, had been around for a long time, for a long, long time, but specifically in this era of Alexander the Great. He had a 13-year window in which he led the Greeks and he, he brought them to, uh, to unity, that they did incredible things from a worldly perspective of taking over the known world, not just in their might, but even in their culture. He said they did, uh, so this picture of this goat that comes on the scene, he comes across the face of the whole earth without even touching the ground. And it just shows the speed at which this goat is moving and the speed at which the kingdom of the Greeks, the Greek empire, specifically the kingdom of Alexander the Great, is taking over the known world. And so we see this picture of this goat. Uh, and again, they use this, this familiar animal. The Greeks were known, believe it or not, as the goat people. Uh, 200 years before even this vision of Daniel. So this was nothing novel. They were known as the goat people. You say, well, why would they be known as the goat people? There are a lot of goats in Greece. 
uh, even today, if you'll Google it, you'll see that Greece is known as, the, uh, as, as having the most residential goats in all of the European Union. So there are goats all in Greece. If you want a goat, go fly over to Greece, get your goat, and bring it back. They say they're really cute and adorable, but we will have none at my house. And so there's these goats, and some of you have goats, and so maybe you're part of Greek. I don't know. Uh, but the, the goat people, and so they're known as goats, and there's this picture of the goat. And so you would think that a goat doesn't have much chance against a ram, but this goat is different. This goat, he comes across the known world flying super fast, and it says, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. It said it had a prominent horn, a very specific horn, a distinguished horn. And this horn represents an individual who is Alexander the Great. As he is flying across the world, taking over the known world. He came to the ram uh, with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him with his powerful wrath. His powerful wrath. So we see this conflict begins. And this new, this new animal comes on the scene. This goat comes on the scene. We, we know that it's Greece. And so we have the, the Medes and Persians. And now we have the Greeks come on the, the, the scene of the world, if you will. And this conflict ensues. Because whenever you have these world powers, they want the same thing. They want power. They want uh, prestige. They want uh, domination. And especially this time in human history, that's what it was about, was world domination. And the Greeks specifically, as we'll see in just a moment, they weren't concerned with just ruling with a mighty fist, but they wanted the, the known world to know who they were and to share their culture. And so there's this conflict. They couldn't just be friends, as we know, uh, as history tells us. And so he ran at him with his powerful wrath, and I saw him close, I saw him come close to the ram. And he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram, and he broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. So there was no fight. He came and he hit him, he smacked him, he knocks him down to the ground, he breaks his horns. And these horns, I don't think I mentioned earlier, represent the two kings and the, the difference of those two kings. He destroys uh, Cyrus and Darius. We know this from uh, even from history. He cast them down. There is no one, it says, who could rescue the ram from his power. So very similar language we see there uh, in verse, uh, verse 4. There's no one who could save him. There was no one in all the known world who could do anything about this new kingdom that was emerging. Alexander the Great's empire. There's no one who could rescue the ram from his power. And then the goat became exceedingly great. So again, this picture. So the, the, the ram becomes great. Uh, the, the Medes and Persians become great. Darius and Cyrus become great. They rule the world. And now here comes another challenger. Here comes another nation on the scene. And they don't just become great. They become exceedingly great. They become even greater than this previous empire. And they were even greater than the previous empire before that, the Babylonians. So we see this shifting of power. And Alexander the Great, for these 13 years, as he brought together the Greek nation, and he did incredible things historically. And you can read more about Alexander the Great, and many of us know uh, certain facts about Alexander the Great and his empire. But Alexander the Great did not live forever. It says that, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. So it's this picture of the fall of, the, of Alexander the Great. He was strong, this great horn, this, this conspicuous, distinguished horn in the goats uh, on his face was broken. 
And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So what does this mean? What is this broken horn? We got four more horns. What is going on? And so as Alexander the Great, as he dies seemingly early, he dies at 33 years old, history records, um, kind of at the, at the height, you know, 13 years is not long in the, uh, when it comes to how long a lot of these rulers led. But, uh, but he dies. And he had four sons, but they were murdered. And so his kingdom is not left to his sons. His kingdom is left to four of his generals. And some would say not even passed on to his generals by Alexander, but they were taken by his generals. Alexander is gone, and he has no rightful heir. Uh, there becomes this power grab. And so they don't just rule the, the, the known world together. They actually divide it up. They divide the kingdom up. I think I have that written down somewhere. There was four kingdoms. You had Macedonia. Uh, you had the kingdom of Asia Minor. You have the kingdom of Syria and Mesopotamia. And then you had the kingdom of Egypt. And these four generals took these four kingdoms and they spread out over the known world and they began their own kingdoms. And so again, more power grab, more conflict, more war, more sinful men looking for power. And we see this. Uh, all through history of humanity god doesn't just see the future he sets the future and before we move on even from alexander the great's reign one thing that's that's very interesting to note is just as god used uh the persian empire he also used alexander the great's empire he used the greek empire what we called one thing that probably the thing that alexander the great was known most for and we've talked about this even as we go through the books of the new testament is hellenization hellenization and what that means is he wants the 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 countries that he captures the the people that he captured to know the greek culture and so that all the civilized known world would end up learning one language, and that was Greek, ancient Greek, what we call Koine Greek. And this started with, with Alexander the Great. People still knew their languages, but the, all, all civilized people would come to know the Greek language. And guess whenever God planted the church and God started writing the New Testament, guess what language it was written in? Greek. Koine Greek. And so God used, well, before Alexander the Great, where you had, you, had, you had nowhere near one tongue, now you have one tongue that God is able to use to not just to write the New Testament, but to disseminate the New Testament and the people of God be able to read the Word of God. And so God even uses this desire of Alexander the Great for people to know his culture, ultimately to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see this in so many different ways in the New Testament and even today. Hellenization was a vehicle in which propelled the gospel 400 years after Daniel's vision. Because again, God doesn't just see the future, He sets the future. Alexander doesn't live forever. He dies. These kings uh, rise up. They take over his kingdom. And they uh, begin to have their own kingdoms, their own empires, their own wars, and all these things going for hundreds of years. And those kingdoms were going to become their own unique empires and have their own unique cultures until that fourth beast that we see in Daniel chapter 7, the Roman Empire, would come and, uh, and raise up around 27 B.C., around the turn of the millennium uh, with the first Roman Empire emperor, August, uh, Caesar, Augustus Caesar. And so we see this continuing to play out. So God sets the future. We see all of this play out. 
But also we see, we see the second thing here is that God has his foes. Not only does God set the future, but God has his foes. You continue in verse 9. So we see that these four uh, horns, these four conspicuous horns, they, uh, they raise up these four generals. They start their kingdoms uh, across the known world. But out of one of them, specifically out of the, the general who went on to, um, to, to lead Macedonia, out of one of them, a little horn which grew exceedingly great, again, toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And the glorious land there being Israel, being Jerusalem. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the host of heaven and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So we're seeing this picture of this little horn, of this new nation, of this new ruler, of this individual who is, who is declaring war, not just against earthly kingdoms, but is declaring war against the heavenly kingdom, declaring war against God himself and against his people. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with a regular burnt offering because of transgressions. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. So we see this picture of this war, not only with the, 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 the kingdoms of men, but we see this one, this little horn that we talked about in Daniel chapter 7. We see this little horn come back to the front of the scene and cause great turmoil for the people of God. I wouldn't say he caused much turmoil for God because God was not scared. God, there was, no, there was never a point in which he, that he was winning against the kingdom of God. Maybe only seemingly to his people. But God has his foes. God has those who are against him. And this has been the truth ever since Genesis chapter 3. Ever since sin entered into the world, there has been turmoil. There has been sin. There has been suffering. There has been war against God and Satan. And so we see that Satan has his, has his people. He has his, those who rebel against God just as he did. And so here is this little horn. And oh, this little horn is such a mystery. I won't get into too much of it this morning because we're going to leave it for Evan next week. But a few things about this little horn that's mentioned in chapter 7. Uh, some say it's the same little horn there in Daniel chapter 7. I believe it's in verse uh, 8. I consider the horns and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. Some would say it's the same horn. Some would say it's not. Some would say this little horn was the historical person Antiochus IV, or uh, as, as better known in history, Antiochus the Mad. And there can be a case made for that. Antiochus preceded the conquest of the Roman Empire, so he was alive uh, during these next few hundred years, and he wreaked havoc against the kingdom, uh, against the, the, the people of God. Uh, he made a sport of it. And that's why as he became known as Antiochus the Mad, it was the way that he attacked the people of God and made an enemy of God himself. He profaned the Jewish temple by stealing its treasure, by even coming into it and building an altar to Zeus in the middle of the temple of God. And more than that, sacrificing a pig inside the temple of God. He killed a great number of Jews and enslaved even more. He outlawed circumcision and required Jews to eat pork and even to sacrifice to false gods. Does that sound like an enemy of the Lord? Does that sound like one that the people of God would dread? 
This was Antiochus IV. So a historical case could be made that it could be him. Historical case could also be made that it was Nero. And so you look at the fourth beast who is, who is likely Rome, you see that Nero is similar to Antiochus IV, in some ways even worse. Nero was the fifth emperor of Rome. He was the emperor during whenever Paul uh, was writing his letters. And Nero was most well known for the brutality that he exercised against specifically Christians. History remembers Nero for setting Christians on fire and hanging them on a cross in order so that his parties would have light. Does that sound like an enemy of God and his people? Nero hated God's people and rebelled in every way against the Lord. So there's a historical case that it's Nero. There's a historical case that it's Antiochus IV. And yet others can make a compelling case that the little horn is the Antichrist who's yet to come that we read about in the New Testament. And so the answer is, I don't know. The answer is, it's hard to say. But here's the thing, whether it's Antiochus IV, whether it's Nero, whether it's someone else, maybe it's someone else even in history, in all of these cases, one fact is the same. The little horn is a vicious enemy of God, God and His people. God has His foes. And whether we are struggling with worldly kingdoms and sinful kings or whether we're fighting against our own personal struggles of doubt, distress, and depression, we need to know that we are not fighting alone. In fact, it's not even our fight. Go with me to John chapter 15 real quick. John chapter 15. This fight is nothing new, and ultimately we are not at the center of this fight. John chapter 15, verse 18 says this, If the world hates you, as you walk through Nero and you walk through Antiochus and you walk through so many others and even those today, it's clear that the world hates believers. The world hates those who love the Lord and who look to Him. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So it says, don't worry. You're not the culprit here. The, the world hates me. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So there's your encouragement this morning, church. You are hated. Not just hated by a person, not just hated by someone in your family you don't like. You are hated by the world. And if the world loves you, then likely you may not truly love the Lord. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes 
whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So there is so much truth. There is so much hope. There is so much encouragement in the words of Jesus. The truth is we are hated. The truth is we are hated by the word. The truth is the world. The truth is God is hated. But he said, it's okay. I'm going to send someone to you. I'm going to send the Spirit of God. The Spirit of the Father will come and be inside of you and be your great encouragement. We see that in, happen in Acts. And so although the Lord can restore uh, all of these areas of our life, though the Lord can save His people throughout history, because even though He can do these things and provide for us even more than we can hope or imagine, even amid our suffering, in our struggle, He is there. And God promises He will never leave us nor forsake us. So just like those exiles of Daniel, just like the early Christians uh, in the, the turn of the millennium, uh, just like us today, we do not have to feel hopeless. We do not have to feel alone because we are not alone. God is with us. Emmanuel. Christ has not promised to defeat our enemies when and how we think, and wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be good just to read some Scripture here and, and have this plan? That's not the case. He doesn't defeat them when and how we think, but He promises us His presence in, the, in their midst. And this was the reality and the hope of Daniel chapter 8. War and strife would come. And this is the vision that Daniel is seeing, that war and strife would continue. It would not get better. The enemies of God and the enemies of His people would arise yet only for a little while. And the third thing we see there first is that God sets the future and that God has his foes. And then thirdly, the enemy's time is finite. It is finite. It is limited. So you go there to verse, verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, so you got this conversation between these two holy ones, between these two angels and his vision. For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering and the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? So how long is this stuff going to happen? How long, how long are the people of God going to be attacked? And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. So this is going to happen for a long time, it says. And then it's going to cease. And there will be restoration to the sanctuary of God. So how long, he says, will this take place? And he gives us an exact time. 2,300 days. God has a plan. 2,300 days. And let me tell you, church, you can make all kind of charts with that information right there. You can do all kind of division, all kind of addition, subtraction, multiplication, and you can have lots of charts. But I would suggest if you do to use a dry erase board, all right? Because there's going to be lots of changes that are going to have to be made. These 2,300 days. Well, is that 2,300 days or is that, uh, 20, is, is, is that 2,300 evenings and mornings? So is it 1,150 days? If my spot math was correct, there, hopefully it was. So which is, is it 1150? Is it 2300? And is it 2300 days from this date or from this date? Is it exact 2300 days? Is it 360 days in a year or 365 days in a year? Which calendar are we going off of? Well, let me tell you, it doesn't matter. 
God did not give us this number for our, uh, for our calendar accuracy. We're not given the number of days to know when our salvation comes, but to know that it comes and that the Messiah is coming and that God has a plan and that he has given a short leash to the enemy, a very short and limited leash to the enemy. When it comes to the end of days, the return of Christ, we don't have to know God's plan. We just need to trust him. Go with me to one Last passage of reference to Second Thessalonians, again in the New Testament. Second Thessalonians chapter two. Starting in verse one. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. So it says, don't be shaken up just because you think you know what's happened, just because you feel the end is near. Don't be shaken up, as often the church is. Let no one deceive you in any way. And there is so much deception as we deal with the end times. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. And we've seen this played out already by two others and they will be played out again. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. You know what keeps him back. It's God, ultimately. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In short, what does that say? Jesus wins. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so we see that God sets the future. We see that God has his foes. but We see the enemy's time is limited all through Scripture in Daniel and all through the New Testament, all through the Old Testament, all through all of Scripture. We see so many truths, and one thread that we see there is the sovereignty of God. We talk about the sovereignty and the omnipotence of God often. And there is no enemy that has ever taken God by surprise. There is no enemy that has ever had a, the remotest of chance against the Lord. It is the Lord who is already victorious, and He is letting history play out. What the future was for Daniel is history to us. And what the future is for us is the history for the Lord. He is in absolute control over all eternity. And so let us look to the hills from where our hope comes. Let us keep our eyes on Jesus. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this, this truth of your word. We thank you, Lord, for this hope that we have in Scripture 
The Lord of history is not something that should cause us distress. But Lord, it should cause us to rejoice that even in the midst of suffering of your people, you have always overcome. And you have always used that which seems so dismal for your glory and for our good. And so help us to remember that this morning, even in the the world in which we live and the news that we read each and every day. For the struggles that we face in our life. And we look to you and trust you knowing that you are in absolute control. Lord, as we continue in our service this morning, as we sing, Lord, as we come to the communion table, as we have a chance to give, Lord, as we leave this place, may we do so as those who are victorious in Christ, even whenever we don't feel it. We love you and we praise you and thank you for your word this morning. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.